HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because, to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Mary Izette. From Fomentabody. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, this is one half of Snacky Tunes' Greg Bresnitz with a little bit of context for today's episode. Recently, when we were over in Berlin, we interviewed a lot of people in the food industry and food scene, three of which who are artists using food as their medium. We originally intended each of these interviews to stand alone, but after going through them, we realized they made a lot more sense being grouped together. We wanted to apologize for the format, as it's recorded, set to throw to musical guests at the end, but instead it's just more food interviews. So, please enjoy today's episode, and thanks for listening to the show. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse. Snacky Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, coming to you from Neunkin, uh in Berlin. Uh, I wanted to read something, because normally we don't do this, but as a way of introducing our guest, Kim Upstill, today, uh, who sent like the best description ever, uh, from serving fish head soup for loneliness, along with a toast spread with the color of your mother's kitchen table... To quail eggs encased in squidding pasta to give protection in a cold city, or a rich burnt eggplant and pomegranate salad to commemorate the unexpected depth of a good date. The meals infuse public food with personal memory. That's a good entry. <laughs> uh, Kim, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Um, that was uh, the description that you did for your kind of pop-up at Agora Cafe, which we'll get to, um, but why don't we kind of go back a little bit... Um, 
Normally, most of our food guests come from different backgrounds, but you have a really strong arts background. Yeah. Um, where did you go to school? Uh, I started off at Kalamazoo College in Michigan, and then I transferred to Evergreen State. So I spent two years in each of those places. And what did you get your degree in? Uh, art and critical theory. Mm -hmm. In Evergreen, there's no specific degree. You sort of choose uh, your own track, but that was my focus the whole time. So, yeah. um, and was cooking always part of your life, or was it just kind of like, I mean, obviously we all eat, but uh, where did it kind of sit along uh, the critical theory? Um, it didn't really start meshing with the critical theory until after I got out of school, but in terms of cooking, my family has always cooked. Um, we moved a lot when I was growing up, and so the kitchen and sort of like this dining hub um, where my parents would have dinner parties and all these things was really important. Um, and I sort of figured out really early that that's how you made friends that stuck. So I was like, oh, I've got to figure that out. What was your, like, uh, what did you used to cook early on for people that would be like the, yeah, maybe, like, maybe we'll go back and hang over at her place. Yeah. <laughs> um, I could do souffles from, like, an early oh, that's an early age, right? So you can, like, come up to a party and be like, listen, this party's cool, but, like, want to come have a souffle? And then it's like, yeah. The souffle move. Was that mm -hmm, also, yeah. like, a date move, or was that, like, a friendship? Or yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, I think, like... Like re this really amazing liquidy chocolate sauce that turns into like this fudge when it hits ice cream. That's more of a date move. That's yeah. like a. It's like you can't not take your clothes. You're like you're already messy. You got, yeah. You got, uh, you got that, on you. Like if I came to someone, someone served that to me, I'd be like, are they are they trying to sleep with me? Like what's like I thought we were friends, but oh, like <laughs> but oh oh god okay. oh, uh, yeah the hope the hope for reaction for sure the chocolate fudge move. And um, you you said your parents cooked because I know that you did like a dinner event with your dad. So, um, were they professional or were they just, like, amateurs? Well, not amateurs, but, you know. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. What type of colonial experience did they have? Um, yeah, they're both uh, fucking amateurs. Yeah. Uh, no, my dad is a really enthusiastic cook, so he was the one of the family who was always experimenting and, like, inviting people over. And my mother is actually um, from Poland. My dad's American. Okay. My mother was, like, the down-home, like, let's make some really grounding food. Um yeah, but uh, I definitely got my experimental flair from my father. And what were what were some of like dad's signature dishes growing up? <laughs> he was really good at mushroom risotto. That was okay. like a thing that I fucking loved. Man, you're, you're a family of complicated dishes. <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, yeah, simple, uh -huh. simple but complex. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but he just experimented with all sorts of stuff in the last few years. He's been really excited about Szechuan, which is like really adorable. And then recently, the sort of Jerusalem craze um, cookbooks. He's been like riding that train. Pretty what's hard. his like? Uh, has his like peppercorn count like just like expanded, <laughs> or like what's his peppercorn game like? His peppercorn is it's pretty on point. Um, they move between New Zealand and America, and mm -hmm. like New Zealand's peppercorn game as like a nation is like pretty low. Like yeah. they're like pretty basic. Yeah. So um, yeah, but he's been bringing that game over there, so that's nice. Uh, so they're in New Zealand now. They're back in California. They come back for the summers so that he can go to Burning Man. Oh. It's really important for him. Um, yeah. So they're there for a few months. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, has he imparted, like, any of his enthusiasm or... I mean, obviously enthusiasm, but, like, his knowledge or, like, are there tips from Dad that he's passed... Or, or talk about the series that you two did together. Okay, yeah. Well, in terms of tips from Dad, there's a three-step rule for oh, three dinner parties. Okay. So that's, that's, like, first. That's first. All yeah. Right. Um, that's, that's family basic. So it's... Um, uh, you know, invite them in, um, fill the kitchen with amazing smells, ply them with alcohol, and make them wait. Oh, make them wait? Yeah, make them wait. Oh, that's interesting. Uh -huh. I mean, that's super against everything, because usually it's sure. just... I mean, super... <laughs> um, or, I mean, you know, my background is Jewish. It's like, feed them as soon as, like, they get... Mm -hmm. and, and they make them full before dinner is right, served. Right, 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 yeah. Um, how long do you make them wait? 
in the events that I throw, I try to not make them wait too long. Yeah. But the point, the you know, the moments before the anticipation—that's all part of it. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. there's a f- very, very fine line between anticipation and people who are like gnawing their pissed. fingers off. Yeah, right? Pissed. Yeah, pissed. Anticipation drunk, and drunk, pissed. Empty stomach. I mean, because people are like they're going to a dinner party, they're just going to show up like empty stomach, have totally. some drinks, mm-hmm. and then they're just like hammered and you know nothing served. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I haven't really thought of this connection before, but the ways that I like to cook this sort of small plate and this like you know you're going to have five of these, you know, just. Um, you're getting fed, but you kind of are having that anticipation through the whole process. So, yeah. Um, how did you kind of make the jump or the transition, um, into food from your, your background? Um, well, I, uh, got out of college, realized, you know, art jobs, not so much. Um, and I wanted to travel. So I started working as an au pair and through that process stopped cooking for myself and um, had a whole other drama with that family. I'm not a nice Catholic girl, it turns okay. out. Um, they were shocked, Spain. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and sort of not cooking for a while made me realize how important it was. And then when I came back um, from that eight months of traveling back to California to make some money, um, there was an opportunity to co own a uh, cafe with some friends. And what was the name of the cafe? Alchemy Collective. Okay. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And then, so what kind of food did you do there? And like, where did you. Mm-hmm. I mean, where did did we still kind of like basic cook, or did you like? Is that kind of where you began to really pick up the the skills? Um, that was basic cook stuff, but then I started throwing events there, and I was curating, um, and then that sort of bled into food in my personal life or events in my personal life, and then um, after that job, I started working as a private chef, and that's where I started. Like, I just had a budget, and literally, the people did not care what I was feeding them. Right. Like, they wanted like mushy food. Right. Was their description. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So you just bought strange. a blender. No, yeah, no, but I took it as, like, this sort of open challenge to buy as many cookbooks as they would buy me and work through them and, um, yeah, start working in my personal were you, practice. Were you able to get them away from mushy food, or was it still <laughs> kind of just... I don't know that they'll ever leave. I mean, I think they're more on, like, the Soylent track now. Yeah. Um, Which, I, have you had it? I have. I'm actually collaborating on a dinner series around Soylent right oh, now. with them, or just independent? No, not with oh, them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they were at Freeze in New York. They were, really? like, I couldn't tell if it was, um, I guess it's the best thing. I think, obviously, they were a sponsor, but they had, like, people in, like, the spacesuits and just, like, uh, so my, my friend and I went to Sundance together and uh-huh. saw, like, 14 movies in three and a half days, and he bought a Soylent. Uh, and I had oh. one, and I was like, dude, I'm just gonna buy a sandwich. Like, this is, I was like, I, I get it, and I appreciate it, but, mm-hmm. like, we, we, we do have, like, five minutes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. What are you doing around Soylent? Uh, it's with, actually, a friend who works in game design. She runs this thing called The Racket, um, which is, like, a live-action role-play murder mystery thing. So we're just interested in how we could think about elements of a dinner party outside of the physical aspect of enjoying the food together, and um, how that might work or also be weird. Um, and then from Alchemy and mm-hmm. from Private Chef, where did you go next? Well, I started... I, so when I was working as a private chef, I finally had like time to myself. Like Running a small business is not a place yeah. where you have time to yourself. So, um, yeah, I started throwing these events. Uh, I did that one with my dad um, where we tried to work with um, his memories of growing up cooking in North Carolina and my memories of growing up cooking in California and then use that sort of like those poetic cues to build dishes and also like sensory cues. Um, and then hosted a brunch in my childhood home. Did you have any sensory cues that you like misremembered from your childhood? <laughs> that your dad was like, oh, that's, that's, no. excuse me. No, excuse no, me. No, you're incorrect. Um, he did not call me out on any. No. Um, it was an interesting process cause he's not an artist at all. He's, um, 
a renderer and has worked in movies my whole life. Um, and so trying to get any poetry out of him was really, um, he was, he was more concentrated on his end of the, the pulling memories and things than, than mine. What were the dishes that you made? Um, good question. I remember one of them, a more literal one was, uh, shiny steel taco trucks, which is like my memory from California and sort of like driving Mm. around. And his was, um, pulled pork hickory smoke. And yeah. so, yeah, um, there was definitely pork in that dish, but also fennel and, yeah, I forget, it was like a year and a half or two years ago. And your approach to events is, is really interesting. I, I mean, mm-hmm. it's obviously the artist side that kind of comes through. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, what is your, when you're putting together the events, like, what are you looking for? I mean, obviously the food is important, but there mm-hmm. seems to be such, like, a strong kind of, like, uh, narrative around mm-hmm. your approach to them. Yeah, I have been trying to get good at asking myself what I'm interested in that month, um, which is not an easy question because there's sort of things that would be very easy to make events around that I'm not, I don't feel particularly like excited about. Um, so most recently, uh, last week I was in Italy and I do this thing called blues dancing, which is... What's that? A, <laughs> it's, this, uh, it's a partner dance that um, comes out of sort of traditional blues music, but now there's a group a small group of us who does this sort of all-fusion blues dancing, very intimate, um, creative partner dance. Um, anyway, and so the friends of mine come over to Europe and throw these small events, like 60 to 100 people, where you just dance for the whole weekend and eat together. And um, it's Like not, all 60 people dance together? Uh, no, it's a part... I mean, probably at some point you might dance with everyone, but it's a partner dance, so every song is just um, partnered. So do you dance, you go eat, you dance, you go eat? <laughs> I would say, like, you eat, you eat, you dance until dawn, you sleep until brunch, and then you eat, and you eat, and then you dance. It's incredible. Yeah, it's it's really, really fun. Um, anyway, so I went and um, worked in the kitchen for that event in Spain, and sort of remembered why I love that community. I also had a whirlwind romance, and that was nice, and I was just like, oh, I, re- I really feel inspired to, like, make something about the, the types of intimacy that are available in blues dancing. I've also used blues dancing in the past to, like, not date shitty people, like, not do, like, the one-night stands. Like, mm-hmm. I'll be like, mm, I could go out and, like, go on a Tinder date, or I could go blues dancing and probably roughly have the same amount of, like, tenderness and, like, intimacy. Probably more in blues dancing. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, I came back from Spain, and I knew they were all going to Italy for their last event, and I proposed coming and um, sort of collaborating with the organizers of the event on a dinner that evoked, like, the reasons that we dance or the reasons that um, this, like, partnership idea is um, important to us. And so we ended up making a five-course dinner about that. Uh, What was, like, the kind of signature dish? Or did you feel one dish kind of encapsulated the event? Mm, I don't think it encapsulated the event, but one of the best reactions we got was the dish it was called um the air between us because you keep a little bit of space in this part of dancing the air between us um bright sweet long and it was a cantaloupe gazpacho with um lavender garnish Mm. yeah um all right well we're gonna take a quick musical break and then we'll be back and we're gonna talk about uh agora cafe uh and then the concept of fine forgetting uh we'll be right back on snacky tunes in my solitude I'm left with what I can almost bear Felt the breath of my twin Turned out she wasn't ever even there And now none of my evil dreams Can ever come true 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 
Cut from the comforts of guilt and blame The sun falls slowly and my heart beats the same With no stranger to burn my dreams into Uncertainty at midnight Turn into all the hope of the dawn Guts full of doom Heart full of doom Lonely lips of silence, and all I know stays hid behind my eyelids with no hopes for any more bloody smiles without you. So the way that I got introduced to you is through Agora Cafe, and I'm speaking with Pepe while I'm out here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of briefly, can you just tell people what it is who might not know? Sure, yeah. Um, Agora is a collective in Nikon. Um, they have four floors or an entire building, and each floor is dedicated to a different element of their sort of um, collective ideal. So the basement floor or base floor is the kitchen and cafe. And for, I think... The last year, it's on pause now, um, they've been running artist residencies out of the kitchen, so someone will come and propose a project that has to do with the service and um, running of a cafe, and they'll host that person for between one and three months. So what was your, so you did this past April? Yes. So what was your concept? Uh, so my concept was called Soft Work Kitchen, um, and the sort of lunchtime piece of that was called I Made This For You. So... I had this idea about playing with, um, you know, personal public space, industrial kitchens versus personal kitchens, um, and I was also just really interested in what asking sort of uh, intimate questions, but with a like synesthetic quality, could do for generating food and menus, um, and then also how uh, listening could be, I don't know, displayed or. Um, presented in terms of food instead of um, verbal conversation. So I proposed this thing where I would interview five people every week, um, and I would have a set set of questions for that week, ask all of them, and then we'd have a conversation after that that sort of was generated by those. And then um, within that, from, from that conversation, I would build a, like sort of one dish with side dishes menu, and that would become the menu of the day for the cafe. So what were, I mean... What were some of the dishes that were created? Or what were the conversations and then the dishes that led from that? Yeah, um, that's a good example. Well, I had one person um, named Shota, who was actually a guy that I met through the cafe, and he's a painter, and we talked um, a lot about his work and sort of like that, um, the sort of really intense colors are really important to him. And then also this feeling he has about people where he vacillates really like broadly between loving and hating them, um, 
within like a conversation or a day sort of thing. And that that's, um, he doesn't feel like he can really control that, but there's these very like strong, intense feelings. And then um, his personal practice of like walking around the city alone and looking at trees and like being quiet and gentle um, is another piece of his life that's really important. And um, I, by the end, he was towards the end of the project and I started asking, okay, if you want this meal to be um, an invocation, a, uh, oh shit, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, an exorcism, an invocation, or an incantation, which would it be? So trying to sort of categorize what maybe I thought I was responding with. Mm. Um, and um, he said that he wanted a invocation of the sort of, um, that like calmness that he feels uh, when he's walking around. And I was also interested in this sort of like polarity of emotions about people and um, could they, if they're coexisting in him, um, can that be delicious and uh, can, that, can those two feelings um, exist in, at the same time. Uh, yeah, so I made a dish that was kind of a split plate. It was a lot of dark pinks and, um, dark reds. It had some floral elements. Uh, it was very grounding. There was like a soft boiled egg. Um, Mm. uh, yeah. And I think a cup of nettle tea, um, wild nettle tea anyway. Um, and so I think of him because he was one of the sweetest people that I talked to and he wrote, after the meal, and he said, you know, like, um, I had this meal with my friends, and I wanted to share it with them, but I was also like, like, people, you know, in, <laughs> in this uh, public cafe, and uh, he said that it was one of the f- sort of first meals that he had in a long time where um, he felt that sense of, like, stillness or, like, gentleness that he feels when he's alone, but with his friends. So That's incredible. Really uh, were these, I mean, when you presented the dishes, did you present any stories about the people or were the or were they just kind of just presented abstractly except for you and the people being interviewed Mm -hmm. yeah no there's a um blackboard that's sort of central in the cafe and it would say the menu of the day and so i would pull like words and colors and textures that i've been talking about with the people and use to create the dish and that would become the menu so uh, which was aggravating to the cafe staff for sure because people come up and be like um so we're eating like butch blues right now and i'm like well yes and also like um, so that was present in the cafe. Uh, there was a write-up about the residency on the wall. There was a sort of visual element done by Jerry Brennan, who's a, um, sort of calligraphy artist in the city. And then, um, in terms of the meal presentation to the person, they sit in the same spot every day. I take a picture of them and I would also handwrite them like a, not like a love letter, but kind of a love, like, uh, I would handwrite them sort of what I had thought, um, when I was thinking about the dish. Did, and did they each come in on their own day and eat their food? Yes. Um, yeah. Was so that a requirement? It was a requirement, yeah. Or it was, like, a, a very firm suggestion. Because um, that was part of it, was, you know, I want to make this thing for you, and it's a response to our conversation. Um, and hopefully it's a continuation of the conversation. Uh, did anyone eat and be like, you know nothing? You know nothing <laughs> about me. You don't oh understand my God. me at all. I had one day that um, I really fucked up. Because everything I was making, I was mostly making for the first time. You know, whether or not it was, like, a new combination or a new technique, um, I was just like, well, like this is what I think the conversation asks for, so I'm going to do this. Um, And there was definitely uh, one day where I fucked up two really crucial things, or I just didn't predict sort of effects of things on each other. Uh, And the person who had it was like, wow, um, that was a really, it's really beautiful. (laughs) That's so different from it tasting good. Mostly it tasted good also. Um, And was this, um, 
at all documented or put together as a, like the final project where people can, can see this? Totally, yeah. So I'm working on a book right now, actually with one of the participants. Um, she's helping me edit it. So it's uh, write-ups about the interviews. It's the notes from the interviews that I was taking. It's not, there's an idea about describing how you might go about cooking it, but it's more of um, like an emotional reaction than it is like, and this, I used half a cup of flour. Oh. You know? uh, and then there's the documenting photos that happened every day. Uh, do you also have, like, um, the guidelines for people to recreate it themselves? Like, here are the questions that I asked, and, like, if you want to interview people, this is... Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that you brought up um, in your various projects was this concept of fine forgetting, which is, like, the erasure of agricultural history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, like, totally. that was an interesting thing that, like, as a running through events, maybe you could kind of, like, talk about the concept and how that plays into, like, your construction of your... Um, food series. Sure, yeah. Um, That term came up initially with uh, Unearthing Roots, Real California Cuisine, which was an event that I did in collaboration with my friend who works in the Central Valley um, in California, and so works with uh, immigrant laborers and people who have really low legal rights, and I was in, you know, the coast and working in sort of this, like, fine food. So it was like this, this mashup of, like, once you kind of come into this restaurant space or this little bubble of nice candles and tablecloth, you tend to forget Um, the history of where your food came from. And I think that has more um, conceptually become important to me in thinking broadly about, okay, how do we bring um, histories and experiences to the table or um, have people, I don't know, inspired to work with those themselves um, through these processes. Uh, The find-forgetting thing in terms of agriculture, was specific to that, um, to that one event. It's definitely something I'm interested in, and I'm actually talking, Janaki um, is her name, we're talking about running another series uh, in Fresno. So how much time do you spend going back to California or kind of bouncing around for your food events? Uh, I don't know yet. Um, I came in, I came to Berlin in October for a different residency at Agora, and that's how I sort of became involved with that mm. scene. Um, and I went... From there, I went to New Zealand to write a um, French festival show with my sister that also had to do with food. Then I came back here for the April residency, and now um, I'm taking like a little bit of a break this summer. And then, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. The Soylent dinner is in San Francisco, so if that ends up um, being generative, I'll pop back over there. So does the? I mean, it's really interesting. So is like food just one of the mediums that you put your creativity to? Are there other? kind of disciplines in the art world that you mm-hmm. uh, express yourself? Uh, I make zines, but the, <laughs> those are, <laughs> those actually end up tying into menus a lot anyway. Um, but yeah, I would say illustration um, and writing, but it all it all interconnects for me. I wouldn't say there's like another, another one that is disparate. Um, one of the other things I want to touch on is the call to prayer dinner mm-hmm. that you did as well, which I thought was really interesting and in, in the concept behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could just explain it and talk uh, about it. Yeah, so that was actually, I think, the first time that I started thinking about um, <clears throat> Food and Poex uh, together. So I was um, asked to run the kitchen for an artist residency in Italy, which when you get that request, you're like, shut up. Like, yeah, that's like, not okay. a real thing. Yeah, Oh, fine. Um, yeah, so this is when I was still owning the cafe. And I went over there, and um, it was a bunch of performance artists and um dancers and it just became this really rich space for investigating food with them um and the well the thing that led up to that was I taught a class on um uh sound and food and so we went around the table I had like 
six different this is this is a fun trick you can do at home um i had like six different little ingredients and we went around and they tasted each of them and said what sound um they were for them so for instance like the salt cured lemon rind was seagulls for someone as as it is as as it is, i mean as obviously. obviously uh yeah and so how could it not mean duh um they barely need to taste that uh anyway so we went around and sort of built this idea about um sound and food and then I, I asked them to each write a sentence they'd been working on from this um, project they were making, th- their favorite sentence of the day. They all wrote sentences. We exchanged all the sentences. And I said, okay, you have 20 minutes to go into my kitchen and make a two-bite dish that evokes this sentence for you mm. through flavor. Um, and the results were incredible. Like, people were so amazing. Um, and so from that, I um, started thinking more about how I could give that back to the group, and I made this thing called Call to Prayer, which was another prompt from this sort of residency. Um, which was thinking about the elements of uh, calls to prayer, so sort of like a long note and a bright note and then like a really lingering thing, um, or lingering sound. And, uh, yeah, I made this very small um, three, it wouldn't even be bites, like three lick uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> plate, um, and we all sort of went through it together with this, yeah. And then, uh, you know, did... What was the kind of the reaction, the result from from those dishes for the people that were like part of this process, or how did that influence like what you cooked for the, the mm. artists over time? Uh, yeah, it. I mean, it turned dinner time conversations a lot more interesting. Like people started being like, "God, what sound is this stew?" You know, it was an incredibly small budget, so the amount of um, sort of experimentation that was allowed in the larger kitchen was um, a little limited. But it ended up um, that part of the show that was generated through the residency had these, like, food element qualities or this sort of consumption. Um, yeah, and I think that it, it influenced that. I mean, one of the interesting things about your projects is that you, the food you are cooking seems to adapt to the art project that you're working with. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things that you kind of look for when putting together menus or the food you're going to serve people? Um, is it, like, the art they're performing, the narrative they want to tell, the just kind of, like, the discipline it is, or, like, you know, um, how does that, you know, change? Yeah, I mean, um, a good example is right now I'm working with um, Grunfeller 9, which is a gallery here, and they're doing a, uh, like, a thank you dinner. They just won the Space Award for Berlin, so they're doing these, like, personalized thank yous for all the performance artists and, um, to some extent, collectors, but I think mostly artists and workers who have been in the space the last five years. And so our conversations right now are around, um, both around, like, words of thanks or gestures of thanks and how to make that happen. And then also uh, what the curator brought up recently was like, well, we're inviting a bunch of performance artists. And so like, regardless of whether we ask them to, they are going to perform at some point in this meal. You can't, <laughs> Which is, you, you, you can't, can't stop fucking them. stop them. Yeah. Um, you can maybe yeah. control when, but you can't <laughs> stop them. Right. And so another piece of the dialogue is like, well, how then do we imagine the food to be, um, to invite that in certain parts or, um, yeah, to not, obviously we can't, like, schedule anything, but how maybe to have a section where, like, these colors and textures or, like, ways that you're being invited um, are, uh, I don't know, more appealing to performance. Hmm. Yeah. Last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite types of art is surrealism. Mm. If you were to make a dish for <laughs> the surrealism movement for, like, Andre Breton or Magritte and Cherico, what would you serve them? Oh, I would have a really, in, like... A very long conversation with them first, I think, and I would, um, I would really try and pull uh, whatever I don't know, like odd aesthetics they had in them right then, um, and then work that into a dish. Not an answer, but we'll take sure, it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
thanks for making time. Mm-hmm. Um, where can people find you, get in contact with you, uh, hire you to do artistic <laughs> endeavors? Sure. Yeah, I have a website, kimupstill.com. It's a good place to start. I'm on Facebook. Uh, my Instagram is luck and salt. Um, so you can find me there. That's as really well. good. Thanks. Um, well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick musical break and then we'll be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I'm sitting uh, in the grass outside Cafe uh, Agora with Pepe Diao. Uh, thank you for making time. Thank you for uh, coming. Yeah, before we start to talk about your cooking, um, let's talk about your background. You, you've been educated seemingly all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm a leftover of many experiences. Yeah, um, what are some of the... Well, let's, let's do like the greatest hits of those experiences. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's start with... Um, okay, this is not linear, but I studied anthropology, cultural studies, humanities... It's actually a course, a very weird course from my university that was like a hodgepodge of this discipline. Although it made sense to me when I was doing it. And uh, I also learned dance for seven years. I was performing it there in Manila, where I was born. And Which styles? Well, I learned a lot of folkloric uh, dances from the Philippines. And then it, uh, it opened me up to basically like a love for it that I started to learn other dances and I started to travel more and I found many other dances that suit my taste and I learned it and so now my dance, I practice dance aside from cooking and I do both and it's something that uh, both styles of cooking and dancing are kind of nowhere mm. <laughs> a mix of all these uh, flavors that I have learned in different places. Um, you self-taught? Yes. Uh, but one of the things that I read about you that I thought was interesting, you said that cooking was a type of nostalgia for you, like a, for your memories. Well, you've got to start somewhere, you know. You uh, uh, That's how I started with cooking. Uh, it's this magic formula of a guy or a person going out of his... Um, country or place where he grew up most of his life and then be displaced somewhere and then suddenly you're in a different space, not just in a different geographical space but in a different social configuration. You find yourself alone a lot most of the time and uh, there seems to be a lot of writing and thinking and happening mm. and so yeah, I tend to some start to have nostalgia, at, especially at the beginning when I moved here in Europe. To Europe, and uh, yeah, I started cooking, and I remember that the first moment uh, when I cooked, when I basically sautéed onions, garlic, and tomato, and I stopped in the middle of it because I said, "Why did I just automatically sautéed onions, garlic, and tomato?" It's not because I thought about it; it's because I remembered suddenly. Mm. My body immediately remembered. I was hungry and I just started cooking and of course the actions I made were things I have observed for thousands of times in my grand grandmother's kitchen. Mm. So this started for me a kind of school of cooking that uh, has to do with remembering a lot of these um, past memories. That's why I said my story or my greatest hits is not very linear. <laughs> so now we go back to when I was uh, young, like from 6 to 12 years old, when I was with my mother and with my grandmother a lot. And, uh, and uh, yeah, when you, when you sauté, when you cook, you create a smell. Mm -hmm. And the smell brings you to another point of remembrance of the past that is 
more flavorful, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, memory is not always accurate. It's memory. Of course, I know that for a fact. Because, uh, I mean, since we started our cooking project, we also have been doing some side studies, like in neo, new, uh, how do you say, neurosciences. Mm -hmm. And uh, how related is the sense of smell, the thing that we call smell, uh, with the part of the brain that takes care of what we call memory. Mm. And the memory is also connected directly to the part of our brain that makes imaginations. So our memories are basically imaginations because... So how much of the cooking that you do or your memory is real things that happened or things that you've kind of conjured up and kind of pushed together? I think they're halfway. Mm. They are in between this, like, because the, the remembrance, what gives it to you, is an inspiration to enact something now. Uh, you, can, you can always try to reenact it, but you can never have the same thing. Um, and of course, especially if you're in a different place, you find other things around you that also inspires you. So there's a simultaneous process of your memory reaching out for the, or imagining the past, and uh, and you basically sensing what is around you. Uh, is there a particular dish that you have cooked that you feel is like very emblematic of this kind of mashup or neuroscience study, <laughs> uh, approach that you have? Our lunch today. Okay. What was, what was lunch today? Because <laughs> uh, today that's actually one of our inspirational concepts in our kitchen. Well, we try to cook. Uh, Tapping on our memories and tapping on, like, my co-cooks in the kitchen. We always try to be inspired by what made us awake uh, when we were growing up. And so each day we prepare a dish that was inspired by our past, uh, a dish that we always ate, and then we recreate it here. So, for example, today is adobo day. So it's uh, this stew from the Philippines that is kind of a mixture of Chinese and indigenous and Spanish influences. But every Thursday I recreate adobo, and uh, but using like giving itself an opportunity to use other ingredients, especially the the things that are available here. Mm. And so then uh, it's like an old and new experience to me. So you have the flavor or the essence, the sourness and the sweetness, the tangy, tropical feeling, and the apples. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of, of here, um, can you give a little background on Agora Cafe and what is it? Like, what is it as a place? What is yeah. its mission? Yes. Its philosophy? Well, if you think of Agora as a house, so because uh, Agora is a house of many initiatives and collectives. And, you know, in itself, it's a collective. And an integral part of Agora is the cafe. Because in the cafe is where you have the kitchen. And I believe the kitchen is the heart of any space. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and we provide the basic, on a practical level, we provide the basic uh, needs of the people who find themselves here in this space for some time or for a long time or casually. So we make lunch and then we open it as a cafe. Uh, we, yeah, we like to feed and serve. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and I guess it, you could say it's a, a basic necessity in a house. Mm. Mm. 
And there's also been a rotating food program as well, too, or guest chefs, right? In the past five years, Agora has been evolving in the past five years. It has not always been what it is now. You could say that the concept is growing. And in the last years or so, uh, they and then we, as part of it, have been trying out uh, different uh, concepts uh, of food on if, if it works or if it doesn't work. So we pose it as a kind of project or as an initiative and then we put it into practice and we put a certain timeline to see if it works or not. Mm. And then a lot of it didn't work, a lot of it, some of it worked a bit, so there, the leftover of this experience fed into the next one. What are some of the things that didn't work that you learned from in kind of that approach? Well, for example, one of the most important thing that we are learning now because of the fact that we changed our food programs all the time mm -hmm. is the importance of consistency uh, in terms of communicating it to a public because our space is public and we feel the need that we need to create a frame that the people could somehow hold on to mm. so that they know that at these times we are here or that they can receive a certain kind of service or content mm. and actually we have I think we've never done it uh, we always have a different thing every mm -hmm. day and now we're trying to create a menu mm. That uh, you can print, and that uh, <laughs> which is such like a basic concept for so many other restaurants. But for here, it's interesting that you arrived now after five, now. Years. after five years. <laughs> because I don't, I think it, deep inside we never envisioned it as a, a a restaurant as we know restaurants now. I only in my career as a cook or as a chef, people call me chef now, mm -hmm. so I accept it. Uh, I only had four months' experience in working in a restaurant. Mm. I call it another residency. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to know how it felt and to see, and I learned a lot in terms mm. of certain ways of doing. What type of restaurant was it? It was a Korean restaurant. Okay. I never cooked Korean before I worked there, but I learned for a weekend, yeah. <laughs> cooked for my ex-lover. <laughs> and, uh, and then, yeah, after four months, I said, it's enough. I realized, thank God I had the practice, I don't want to cook like this. Mm. Uh, and then somehow I found Agora or Agora found me or both. Probably both. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, suddenly it's a space where there seems to be a very loose framework that I could fit in somehow and keep developing more what I'm doing. And this is what has been happening in the past two years since I started getting involved in Agora. One of the things that Agora does really well is your, like, Wednesday um, producer... Uh, the food assembly. The food assembly, yes. yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is an incredible concept. Uh, how did that kind of come together, and how are you able to convince the producers to kind of come the, and assemble here? Well, like I said, because uh, food assembly is in itself an autonomous collective, mm -hmm. so they created an initiative like this. It started in France, actually, mm -hmm. in Paris. But it grew into London and in other countries like Belgium and here. And uh, the idea was to create a neighborhood meeting place where the neighbors could collect produce, you know, and create a, a little bit more social way of shopping. 
uh, which I, I well you know it has its challenges as well mm-hmm. but that's how it happened and the, the initiative of food assembly saw the space and they found it conducive or they felt it was conducive to create such an atmosphere here and that's how it started there's another project here that is involved with us it's called the real junk food project mm. and it's a collective that uh, ha- forms partnerships with the neighborhood bio shops and they make a choreo- choreography of collecting this organic produce and so it forms part of our food supply oh, wow. so the leftovers of the bio they are fresh but they are leftovers mm. and it's funny because um, our kitchen our collective the the ones that take care of the kitchen is the nowhere kitchen mm-hmm. and the, our philosophy is inspired by leftover mm. or cooking with what is there mm. well, we're going to take a quick musical break and we're going to talk a bit about yes. nowhere kitchen yes. and a few of your other projects and we'll be right back on snacky tunes <laughs> So sad 
mentioned Nowhere Kitchen. Um, what is the larger concept behind it? Well, uh, Nowhere Kitchen is uh, right now uh, currently a network of autonomous cooks. Um, it's funny, serendipitously, none of us trained as cooks, mm -hmm. the ones who are cooking with us. But we do found something in common, a leftover in common amongst all of us, cooking stories. Mm. We all had to tap into our cooking stories in order to activate this thing inside that inspires us in the first place to cook. And are these Nostalgia. So it's nostalgia cooking story is not like, oh man, I like really sliced my hand open. It's more like <laughs> childhood or yeah. younger memories, than yes. that type of cooking stories. Yes, like Danilo um, makes uh, stroganoff every Monday. Mm. It's a Brazilian dish that they appropriated from the Russians, but um, <laughs> it's actually, I, I like the Brazilian version better. <laughs> is that off the record? Oh, no, that's fine. Record. That's fine. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he cooks it e every every Monday, and then, you know, when in the middle of cooking, he said, Pepe, I just remember, this is what I ate on my sixth birthday. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, this is what I like to bring out, mm. uh, a more organic reason for cooking. Interesting. Because uh, everyone, you know, in, in all the interviews were like, oh, like, how are you influenced? Everyone says that they taught me about flavor, they taught me about this. Not many people say, oh, it was my mother's... Um, for me, like my mom's jam. She, yeah. We grew up every summer. Mm -hmm. She makes jam from yeah. scratch. Something that was such a given that you know you didn't know. But like, yeah. that to me was like the time and the care for that. Yes. You never really started. It's like okay, so what was the dish from your childhood? Yes. That you know inspired you to to carry on this tradition. Yeah, I never learned the power of this. You know of what we're talking about now. Yeah, uh, I only uh, if I, I didn't dance. You know, dance taught me a lot about. Uh, the, uh, the the relation of what you're, you know, this repetition. Because in dance, you repeat a lot. And then you realize in your childhood, your mom repeated something a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an invisible practice maybe because mm. it's been there. But now that I cook, I am aware of how many thousand times I saw my grandmother's back in mm. that kitchen while I was watching black and white TV on top of the fridge. Mm. And that's how I got familiar with sautéing onions, garlic. She never taught me. Right. I, I just embodied it, I guess. And it took some kind of action from us, an initiative, an intention to awaken this uh, passion. Uh, and your philosophy on leftover is yes. actually not leftover. Um, and I think it's a really beautiful way. Of, it's, it's more intentional. Yes. Um, well, well, because... You know, now I encounter. I mean, I the, this project started in my point of view three years ago uh, when I was living in Madrid in the middle of what they called an economic crisis, mm -hmm. and so there seems to be a crisis everywhere, and everyone was talking about crisis, but everyone never stopped eating. You know, <laughs> they were eating while talking about the crisis. Right. So I made a, a series as initiated, uh, intended a series of uh, uh, dinners in people's houses, people I didn't knew before. Mm -hmm. And I, only armed with a spice kit, I went there unrehearsed and uh, cooked with their leftovers in their fridge. Mm. And it, start, it became, it evolved as this, what we're doing now. I never knew about it, you know, I never envisioned it before. But I had an intuition, like, 
okay, I, I was hungry, and I like gossiping into other people's lives. <laughs> I'm an anthropologist. <laughs> so what can go wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> and the practice itself created for me a methodology, a way of doing things, or a way of tapping into this thing I call intuition, and how to work with it, and how to improvise uh, with what is there instead of always just thinking about com fulfilling the recipe or, or, or f trying to look for something that is not there. Mm. And so it started as a leftover project, you know, because people understood and they seemed to love the project. And I realized it only later. That's why, oh my God, why are they receiving me so successfully as a cook of leftovers? And I wanted to make my life as an artist <laughs> in Madrid. And I thought, well, okay, I don't cook leftovers. I'm an artist. Yeah. And uh, hello, <laughs> this is Henata. Mm. Hello, but say hi. hi. Say hi to New York. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and uh, and I, re I learned only later that for them, leftover had a kind of negative connotation. Mm -hmm. And it made me question, ah, what is leftover for me? Does it have negative feelings as well? And I realized it did. But going back to where I grew up, in my mother's island, where she uh, grew up and where she was born, leftover means tada. It's translated as tada. And it uh, literally means, it's a verb, so it's not a noun. So it's an action word. It means to leave something behind. So it's an act that people do uh, in order for the next cycle of time. So when I say leave something behind for me, it applies to everything, especially food. Mm. And then that explains why, ah, that's why, that's why there are um, so many dishes in our culinary that remain uh, become more delicious after three days <laughs> yeah. when it, things settle yes it's like usually the word that is associated yes with it, which is such a powerful word it's beautiful yeah. you know it settles and the flavors come together even more and uh we forgot about this mm. a lot of people did uh, and that's why hence leftover became a very negative word right so you've like reappropriated it to be something incredibly I did, more positive. I, I did, but it took time and practice. Yeah. And it took time also in my inside myself to accept my own leftovers. Mm. You know, thinking they are bad or mm. I didn't want to remember. I didn't want to remember my grandmother so much. Mm. Uh, I used to have some memories of her that I didn't want to remember. Right. And then this kind of, did this allow you to not just deal from a culinary standpoint, but kind of make peace with the yes. memories. Acceptance. Yeah. Um, one of the other projects that you are doing is the Spice Roots. Yes. Which I think is also, like, and this is like, I feel like maybe a little bit more on the fun side <laughs> of, of projects. Well, I'm not, having fun now. Yeah. But I mean, um, I, the leftover thing is so deep and so personal. Spice yes. Roots, to me, at least as I understand it, and correct me wrong, it's kind of like tracing history um, through kind of travel and recipes and kind of like how things kind of came. Well, isn't be. that also deep? Yeah. <laughs> it's maybe very that, deep. Maybe, maybe it's viewing things at arm, arm's length as opposed to looking completely inward. 
Yes, but the thing I do with it is that, yeah, that's what we think of history, an arm's length, you know, something that we can visit from time to time and not have to do anything with. But uh, I also realize that it's with us all the time. <laughs> and uh, so the Spice Roots is a fun way, yes, of encountering the past through a melange of uh, my folklores. So I invented Spice Roots in order to make sense of the things I do. Dance, cooking, anthropology. Or I call it the legitimate form of gossip. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, this is where I can combine it through such a project. And it, for people, it's a dinner project mm. where people come together and uh, we cook something for them. And we present the cooking and the serving and all the stories in between as a choreography. Mm. So we take into account everything that happens in the dinner. From can, you give, the, can you give like an example? From the moment they arrive yeah. until the moment they leave. And uh, for example, the moment when we serve the first dish, this is very important. Mm. We have to set the tone for the whole evening. At the, at the beginning, we let people feel free. You know, they do whatever they want mm. and we let them inhabit this kind of, what am I doing here? What's going to happen? And then at some point, we create some kind of ritual. So the first act, for example, on the last performance we did of this, the first act was the making of the last dish. Mm. So we made it in front of them. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, and we just improvised. We started with one element and we let it build up on us, this um, it, it could be anything, an action, a sound, it can build up into, it can grow. So we, we, we do it like that. So we have a frame, it's a dinner, but inside this frame, inside the four or five plates courses we serve, is a kind of uh, frame for improvisation, mm. where we try to flow in the form of dance and music making, incorporating sounds of the kitchen as well and the actions of the kitchen. Uh, for Sounds of the Kitchen, is this where like the sound recipe series came from as well? Yeah. Uh, well, it was a, a kind of as a, another spontaneous project that coexisted without me knowing it. And then we found each other. What was the other project? Oh, the sound recipe. Okay. They started, it's a neighborhood, it's a, it's a local community in Italy. Mm. Ah, you found this yes. video. <laughs> and uh, I happened to be traveling to Italy. Uh, I was traveling without money. So I did a project of five weeks without money. Card, plastic, or, or metal, or paper. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> At least none of this. And I found myself uh, through some networks of people uh, meeting this group who were doing sound recipe. And I stayed with them for a week. And they shot me, and I did the, and we chose a space that was already there, so it was a storage room filled with washing machines and televisions. I, it's, I was like, I thought it was like, is this where he lives? Because where did he get all the washing machines? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like a total artist's dream. No, for me, it's a, oh, it's such a beautiful space. Yeah. When I saw it, I had no doubt that it was there, and we built the kitchen there. So we, after this shooting. 
we made uh, a dinner for uh, about 30 30 or people yeah in the garden with five olive trees yeah it's a, it's a stunning video and just the sound of it and is that you singing on it as well yes yes no i mean just the whole <laughs> he thing he made me sing you know but i mean i think it's i think for me it, it was after reading about you and doing research that yeah. video encapsulates with the dance in it and the cooking and everything it's such a beautiful 5 minutes of what you are about yeah. and how it's all interconnected. Yes, and I could see the nose hairs protruding <laughs> <laughs> out of, of my course, nostril. Of course, that's what you see. Uh, yes, but you, thank you for seeing some beauty there. <laughs> um, so last uh, question, um, advice to maybe the, the listener uh, who wants to maybe kind of cook from their own nostalgia and their own leftovers, where would you suggest that they begin? What would you su suggest they look for inside of themselves to begin to find their own recipe? Uh, you know, sometimes it's, uh, I, I, I find in the experience of meeting so many people, I find that looking inside is sometimes the hardest thing. Mm. So sometimes you have to start somewhere easier. Mm. The fridge. <laughs> <laughs> Go to your fridge and uh, find something that surprises you. Because uh, people don't think of it that way, but they, there is. And I found it in a lot of people's houses when I uh, make an ethnography of their inventory of their leftovers. They said, oh, I didn't know that was there. Mm. You know, the fridge for me functions a bit like the subconscious. Mm. Yeah, in between this conscious and subconscious, where suddenly you forget certain things and that are all there. And if you try to cook something with it, maybe something will happen. Hmm. I won't tell you what. Okay. Um, well, thank you for making time. This is a, the best outdoor setting ever. <laughs> yeah, um, isn't it? Yeah. So if people want to find you or get in contact with you or ask for, for you to come and raid there. Or, or if they want to cook with us or, or, or if they want us. us to cook there or here or nowhere. How can they find you? Nowherekitchen at gmail.com. Perfect. And we also have a website-ish <laughs> you know, our website is not so updated. We are more updated than, than our right. website. <laughs> but you, they can find some information through nowherekitchen.com or if they Google Nowhere Kitchen, leftover. maybe they find us too. Yeah. And sometimes I get surprised by what I find when we Google us. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you again. Thank um, you. We're going to take a quick musical break and then we'll be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes. Ciao!
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, coming to you live from a living room floor in Kreuzberg. I'm here with Joel Isaac Black, who is currently the chef at Fama and Kauter Schmaus. Did I get that? Fama Kauter Schmaus, that's correct. And I'm, I must uh, make a distinguish. Uh, must distinguish between in the German language, chef yeah. means uh, boss. Oh, okay. And I would be a cook. You're a cook. I'm a which, cook. In, which in the States would be below, you're just a cook, like a line cook as opposed to like right. captain of the ship. No, but but uh, you also, in in uh, the German Ausbildung system, this is, this is when you're, when you're learning a trade. Yeah. And traditionally, uh, the cook will have a three and a half year apprenticeship and this is the Ausbildung. So when you earn the title cook, you are the equivalent of a sh- what a chef is in America. So have you done your internship? I have not. Oh, okay. I am completely self-taught, and, um, and this is significant with, within my, uh, my kitchen and the, the peers that I interact with. So we're going to get to that, but let's go back. Um, I can't help but notice your accent is somewhat similar to mine. So where did you grow up? So I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, um, East Dallas, and this was... Uh, in 1981, I was born, and uh, my parents were essentially, I think, uh, I was a th- I'm, the th- I'm the third of, of three children, so I was, uh, I think they started to figure out their American lives, but they were, bo- they were both essentially Europeans uh, born of uh, refugees from the war, and my dad in Philadelphia, my mother uh, spending some wild hippie years, born in Italy, France and London years there. On vacation, my dad is a muscular frisbee player. I think he did the, the old uh, throw the frisbee near the, the, the pretty girls. And then, like, oh, I didn't see you there. Can you throw that back to me? Uh, impress my mom. She never went back to England. I think marriage and maybe the first kid came along around the same time. And... In 1981, they're in Dallas, Texas. They're they're on their way to Berkeley, California, to live the hippie dream. My dad had some friends. He had ridden on the the Ken Kesey bus out to the festivals, the you know full on. And their uh, whatever automobile they had uh, runs out of oil in Dallas, Texas. I think my dad gets a job hammering roofs for as a journeyman carpenter. And 40 years later, they st- are still living there. And um, of that time, like, were you of, like, the white bread, like, kind of family? Or did you kind of, like, the early days of, like, the co-op kind of, like, natural food scene? Well, they, I think uh, their initial uh, grounding of their marriage was really based on some, some pretty dynamic uh, and experimental views. I know they, they even experimented... Um, my dad is... Uh, has a, a long uh, Jewish heritage, and my mother, of course, Italian, Roman Catholic. Neither of them were practicing, but they 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 were their uh, quasi religion was extreme nutrition uh, sourcing, and of course, in 1981, Dallas, Texas. This the background was Mrs. Baird's bread, the Wonder Bread, local Wonder Bread, hot dogs, hamburgers. Yeehaw, Dallas, Texas, as, as everything that you imagine was true. And they and a couple other uh, conscious uh, thinking families, I think out of sheer necessity, 
formed a, 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 a got a, a, a license for a school. So this was a combination, a school, a food co-op for sourcing um, the staples of their, of their organic um, diet, vegetarian diet, and also um, Montessori schooling, like I said. And, Were uh, the school and the co-op combined? They were definitely overlapped. Okay. I was the third, so I came along, I think, when it was more of a public thing. When it, when it began with my, br- my older brother and sister, uh, it, was ser- it was literally a small group of families who per- combined their purchasing power for uh, organic foods. Uh, and this, this at the time meant finding soybean products, um, meat alternatives, of course, um, yeah. Some macrobiotic diet was, was worked in even though this is a bit fringe as well. And then the kids themselves were, were, were offered this diet in our house, and this also is a uh, schooling emphasis on Montessori principles of, of excelling at your own rate, emphasis on arts. and. Uh, so what was, like a, what was like typical dinner in the house? And, and you're a lifelong vegetarian too. I right? am. And my parents were very, very uh, clear for... From the very beginning, when I was not under the roof, I was free to experiment with any diet that I chose. They really encouraged me. Did you ever sneak meat? No. You know, I, to this day, I still have this, this excuse. I, I don't know how valid it is. But that, oh, well, if I really wanted the hamburger experience, I don't have time because my first hamburger is going to make me sick. Right. Because the enzymes in my stomach oh, will not process it. Um, no, so a, a, a typical meal was was highly, highly influenced from a Mediterranean diet. My mother would make incredible salads, and her her the the greatest culinary thing she imparted was her pace throughout the day. She is always preparing for the next meal, leaving things out, toasting things that will then be used for the next meal, steaming things slowly, and. This doesn't work into your normal young person pace where you have school, soccer practice, you know, rocketry camp, yeah. <laughs> the, these, these activities. But she, uh, at the time, was uh, pursuing a, a career as a nurse midwife and would have very strange hours staying up all night with expectant mothers and then doing yoga with them. And then would she, her, her refuge was the kitchen and she would always, always be slowly working. So and what what was like? What would you beg mom to make? Well, I was always a fan of of the most cheesy Italian stuffed things. Mm. I don't think any of uh, any of my siblings or I were ever uh, overweight in any way. We were, we were quite athletic kids, but uh, pasta based dishes and um, her salads. I think she imparted uh, the importance of. A salad as a, a main part of the meal. Yeah, I've known. I've noticed this here. It's actually Super the, the salad is is always the also the but it's like it's the first course or it's the side to something. Same with same with our where parents. I grew up. The salad was the substantial thing, and this means it would often com, com, contain uh, grains or tempeh or tofu or more significant pro, sources of protein, beans perhaps. Where it was, it was definitely the the, the bulk of the meal. And this, so this was a, always a, a comfort food for us. So when did you start um, cooking? Well, I think, I think I was a little precocious kid and I always wanted to impress people. Mm. And this later manifested itself in, in uh, extrovert 
musician roles that I've played, but it definitely was, I wanted to be the guy who chopped the parsley the finest to show off when my parents' guests would come over and be like, they could say, Joel, chopped the parsley, and I could beam with pride from the corner of the table. So I, I really took these roles really seriously, and um, I remember... Taking like being like okay, well I'm the parsley guy, and I would definitely be very protective. So if a brother or my sister would be like, oh, I'll make the salad tonight, it was no. This is my, uh, this is my role. This is my, this is my uh, duty. So this, this this was kind of like a, an early little uh, culinary experience for me. And when you moved to LA, you started cooking for the house you lived in, right? Yes, um, I think I was always. As as you've if you've spent time in LA, there's always like oh, it's Joel. He's the guy who's in this band and like his other thing is he's this. As we tend to identify with the little activities that we are most vocal about, we're all maybe drunk together at some bar and you're like, what's your deal? And in LA, is the the big smoke and mirrors like maybe we're all waiting tables. I happen to be working at a record store, which I was very proud of this role. But name check. Uh, Amoeba Records, and hello to all my friends who are, <laughs> who are still there in yeah. the trenches, and and uh, what a wonderful place and experience that was. And uh, so your the follow up to an introduction in in LA was really okay. So what's your deal? And I was like everyone else, I was in a band, so that didn't that didn't make me feel any cooler. I think I was not this motivated by ego, but I I, I also was like no, you know, like I I can cook. I'm not afraid to say that I can cook. And and this was about the time that I feel like I, I started to uh, assume uh, ownership of this legacy that my parents passed on. Because you spend your teenage years, uh, I think, questioning a lot of things. And then it's about this time, my first years in L.A., in an undergraduate college, and seeing how poorly certain other kids, through no fault of their own, were, were getting nutrition by meal plans in this, the cafeteria and or just naivety about their own cooking, this empowered me when I realized that I had been imparted um, some really holistic, organic um, traits. And I was uh, able to slowly cook for people in the dorm rooms with very, very limited... Uh, what, would, what would you make? I mean, we had like a toaster in the common room next to like, you know... the Toast na- is big right now. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I, I guess I, I had a sadistic way of like being like, sure, I can cook for 20 people and I can get it all at like, like a, a little Mexican mom and pop store in East L.A. And so it was, it was a matter of uh, resourcefulness from what was available. Do you remember like uh, as any, did any dishes or any meals that you cooked like still stand out in your mind as like a proud accomplishment? Um, well... I, yeah, I mean, I was able to make, like, chilies and things like this. This is not, not so technically challenging, but thinking about uh, textures and stuff, how you can cook and uh, using tortillas and also unex- unexpected things. Using, I remember using sugars from candies. Like, if you just toss some red ring lollipop into something... That sounds disgusting, and it yeah. is, yeah. but there's a lot of sugar in that that you can use then for something else. And really, using color, artificial color from like, 
like candies and and unexpected sources and combining things. I think was surprise. I always have a a, a well guarded family popcorn uh, recipe, and this is this is a, a super savory popcorn with brewer's yeast and some among other uh, kind of hippy dippy ingredients. But this was always a hit so much that. At one point, I was introduced as like the the good popcorn guy. Oh, and then I think I feel like perhaps I had gone too far. Yeah. Maybe that's like not, <laughs> that's not the. It's like I, I'm also in a band. It's like no, you're the popcorn guy. Yeah, so, super exactly. sorry, dude. You don't want to paint. Mm-hmm. Your, you know, this is like being typecast yeah. or, or uh, as an actor. You know, yeah. so we have a mutual friend, uh, John Wyatt. Yes, who I think you did your first um, like official catering gig for. That is true. He he was a great believer and. Like so many of the relationships I met in the the record stacks at Amoeba Records. Do you remember what he was buying? I don't remember the first time because, <laughs> and I can also, I can, as we speak, I can visualize his face peering around the corner. Hey, Joel, got anything new for me? Yeah. Because he's one of those guys who, oh, he's got got the slow slow burn. Over the course of a couple of years, he's going to have the best collection. Yeah. He may not always be scoring the best thing, but. He's so consistent, and he found a way in going east to west for whatever meetings he yeah. had. I think he would always, definitely three, four times a week, make his pass through the through the uh, the record section, and in that consistency, got some incredible stuff. And I also remember this first time at his house. So, yeah. so the occasion for this this cooking was, um, in addition to his now. Uh, uh, almost civic uh, civic duty to, to, to attend these uh, in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery where they project classic movies that are incredible landmark pop culture moments for many of the crowd and there's a photo booth and there's also a sympathetic DJ and his music friends from uh, Dub Lab LA, another shout out um, just really deep Deep uh, music heads in on the West Coast. Um, he would draw from this great roster of DJs to to play sympathetic DJ sets before and after. And the magic for for LA people to enjoy the weather outside and in a in a graveyard and it's projected against the side of the crypt and it's just it's magic. And he had through this this uh, this uh, organization he would um, he would often be in contact with. Uh, Producers and and archives, people who manage archives, administer archives that would uh, have a lot of films that were not licensed for whatever lawyer problems they had for public display, yet were legendary behind the scenes, often music documentaries. Um, I believe this gentleman died, uh, I can't recall his name, but he did a lot of documentaries on... uh, uh, Shelter Records, Leon Russell, and some just like classic Americana. Um, of course, you know Bob Dylan, Lost Reels. These these kind of landmark '60s moments, psychedelic outtakes, some European stuff. Um, he would uh, use his backyard home, which is an uh, unbelievable property up atop Mount Washington, which itself is a, a beautiful enclave, and. Uh, these were just magical moments, and everyone who who walked through the front, through the hedges, was was just some some great music DJ, someone who had a lot to share. And some way or another, I was recommended. I don't recall who made the exact connection. And popcorn guy, 
popcorn guy. Exactly. I knew this was this was something, and this was, uh, I think, just sheer uh, frustration with, as you can be in LA with only being at the record store, exhaustion, and then like, like wow, this is culture. This is happening. No, I got to do something, and I didn't drive. Um, I never had a California license, and I was mugged, and I never bothered to get a thing. I couldn't afford a car. I was paying into tour vans and broke, as, as you are in L.A. And um, I had to borrow a friend's car and go to Burbank, and I remember like, fighting rush hour traffic and with a, with a shopping list for this event and uh, thinking, wait, he, uh, he, sh- he, he didn't even show up. And then he had an assistant, some beautiful L.A. girl, like, walked up to me in the, in the record store and was like, Joel? And I was like, yes. So I believe this is for you. John sent this to me. Um, he said you can stop by tomorrow at 2. And I was like, oh, God, what is this? And, and it's like an envelope full of cash. Mm-hmm. I was like, shit, man. And then I had been to one of these screenings that he held in his backyard before. I don't recall the, the menu or the food, but I was like, okay, I got my work cut off for me. But that was really like, okay, I can keep this in gear, bribe some friends with, with booze and, and fun, and yeah, just give me some cool, beautiful hippie girls, just hang out here, come on, man, like, help me, like, in this kitchen. And his kitchen is really small, full of, like, delicate, like, tequila dispensers. <laughs> and, you know, I, as, you, as you find in, in L.A., like, mid-century craftsman kitchens, it's, it's not so much functional, but I was able to... Uh, put out a menu and I was really conscious of the way people moved for the party and I would send people out dancing among the, the, the crowd in the backyard that was gathering before the, the screen which was just a, a like a something suspended from the trees uh, as the backdrop and uh, serving popcorn but then also having like a little bell where I could ring and then I would have a table full of uh, little bites and, was, and I was good at make orders I would say and that was that was the best way. But uh, okay, well, we're going to take a quick <laughs> musical break, and then we'll be back to talk about uh, Berlin mm. and uh, your uh, cook uh, employment. Cook employment. Cook employment. Employment uh, is is a good word to use because labor and job and labor and wages and things mean something in a social system, people. <laughs> uh, but we will be right back on Snacky Tunes. Yep.
The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. So what is the current landscape of the Berlin food scene in 2016? This is a broad question. Um, I was here in 2011, and like anyone arriving in the city, they say, okay, it used to be cool. And in a lot of ways, I'm sure it was cool because you found your little bars, your little restaurants. And I really can confidently say that Berlin has was so stubbornly about itself. And it still is to some degree, these attitudes that um, things don't have to exist on the internet. Not everybody has to, know, has to instantly be aware of you as a bar, as a restaurant, as, as, as a culinary uh, movement. And in the last five years, it's certainly uh, absorbed some of the, the internationalness and the, and the instantaneous trendiness and um, that's in no small part to uh, the amount of people moving here as, you, as, as anyone who's read any article or kept track of the, these, these migrations would say. So in 2016, I would say we're looking at a place where there's really, really healthy things. And um, there's also some, like anything, there's, there's, um, there's coattail riding. So... Whereas L.A. had its food truck craze or anywhere, and these aren't so phenomenally revolutionary ideas. They're just good ideas. Mm-hmm. I don't discount them, and I think there is great food to be had at all these things. It makes sense how convenient it is and how it works for events and everything. But um, So Berlin, I think, has had some people come over and are like, we're going to do pop-up this, and there was a pop-up dinner craze. And in Berlin, it still is great and still could be great. I mean, you know, the, the amount of locations that are abandoned and to some degree way more interesting than, than the suburban landscape that you would experience in a lot of other places um, make for incredible meals and, and also the lax um, uh, level of code enforcement which is, <laughs> which is the theme of so much of the, from the techno clubs and all the, the culture of the city is Try it first, and maybe your next year we're going to give a visit, and you can get your papers, your taxes, your things. I mean, some incredible, like, city-wide, city-famous things were so impromptu when you look behind the screens. These were not uh, financed, uh, organized businesses. Anything you want to call out? Oh, no, 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 it's not that. Yeah. I, I have plenty of examples, and, and but there... Um, this, this has allowed for such experimentation. So along with the, the great things that have come from this, that maybe have in later years legitimized and normalized, uh, there's some things that's fallen off. I would say a great thing is just here in Kreuzberg, our neighborhood, um, some incredible cycle happened. There was a, a, a local market, and we say Markthalle. So essentially this was... This is a beautiful structure that was a red brick structure with vaulted ceilings. It kind of resembles actually like a Victorian flower garden with, with the type of steel, open skylight construction. 
And this was virtually um, empty, and I mean sad empty. There was a textile discount. This is like where you get three T-shirts for, for 99 cents. Mm. Um, like complete sad businesses. Um, there's a Lidl, or uh, maybe it's not Lidl, but uh, one of the discounted uh, supermarkets, quite sleepy place and completely dusty. And over the course of the last years, through uh, a series of events and extreme uh, tactical marketing, this has become one of the most uh, populated gastronomy-centric uh, communities in the city. And this includes two or three markets a week, which include food stalls that are cooked for. that are so packed, you, they're no longer pleasant. I, I won't pretend that <laughs> even... I haven't even gone to one in the last year because a block away, it's already a bit hectic. Mm. That's how popular they are among kids. And and the, the convenience, the pedestrian access to this place is beautiful, but the background that a lot of people don't know is is the organizers are really dedicated slow food people, which, mm. of course, is self-explanatory. No, nothing I mean, that heritage itself came from the slow food movement right. as well. But a lot of the stands itself are uh, um, small producers that have, in the last five years, gone from quite humble, really modest uh, positions in the sense that they just showed up and were desperate to sell their wares, the things that they grew on their farm, and or, you know, the, the, if, if they were, they were uh, meat producers, the, the products that they, that they, they, uh, they were bringing to market have now become, like, bywords for the, the trendiest luxury meat, dry-aged meat. I'm a vegetarian still. Our restaurant, where I work now, Let's talk about your restaurant. So, uh, give sources give, food from the Marktala, okay. and this is a new connection. And again, I thought these worlds were separate. This was like a humble butcher who happened to have a small farm, and now it's supplying a quite uh, above ground, uh, yeah, trendy restaurant. So. so let's talk about the the restaurant. So um, it has a bit of a storied background, uh, well, legendary yes. background, if you if you will. Well. Th- there, the, the whole community existed long before I was but a twinkle in an eye in this Berlin story. And this starts back with the Bar 25. And again, this is uh, divisive. It's, it's, you bring it up at a party. People roll their eyes. People say, oh, my God, my life changed. This was definitely like a Studio 54, though, for a certain era of Berlin kids. And this was a piece of squatted land along the river First, it started with little uh, circus wagons, little uh, construction wagons. They sold beer out of the window, and someone brought a box because when all the other clubs ended up, they wanted to have an after-hours session outdoors, as raw as could be. Within years, it grew into to this positively unbelievable uh, culture of this circus of uh, techno. It had its own labels. Tech, uh, DJs, of course, were legendary. Careers that are giant now were launched there. And it became a byword for European clubbing was the Bar 25 because of its marathon parties. But, uh, of course, at the same time, it was uh, a political thing because it was on squatted land. And eventually they got thrown off, not after having... Uh, Crazy protests on the river where they, they blockaded the river, and then uh, just, just there's movies about it. Mm. I mean, and, and certainly it had its time. And uh, this crew was uh, evicted from their land, 
and found a refuge across, directly across the river in an old factory that this is, this is the industrial banks of the Spree, right in Kreuzberg, by Mitte, very central location, but this is still such industrial land that's at the time was unclaimed or underdeveloped. And I, developed is a loaded word in that sense, but this was a crumbling factory that was originally a soap factory tech, uh, built. built uh, yeah, it was it was a refinery for soaps. During the war, it even built munitions. It had some sort of darker side with slave labor employed for the war effort there. And this was a towering uh, complex, and the in- the immediate outgrowth of the Bar 25 was the Kater. And this is called Kater Holzig. And this is the male cat, the wooden male cat. Here, do the literal translation. Kater is a slang word for the, uh, a hangover. And so it's like a, the wooden hangover. And the logo is a winking cat with a, an X in one eye. This, is, this, this place is notorious for both its, its unbelievable debauchery, long, long uh, parties. It's unbelievable circus atmosphere and this is a place that puts its money where its mouth is like they built an artificial tornado my first week there with with uh like a film wind machines suspended in this courtyard and then threw paint powder and like painted 2,000 guests you know they had they really were out there pushing their things and the crew itself was the DJs the builders, and these were incredible carpenters, and the whole wooden thing comes from the fact that they, they would take environments and steal wood from all over town and reuse wood to build incredible fairy tale lands. So they would have dance floors with an entire uh, forest of walkways, like an Ewok village that's also got dance floors above you. And this was all built like overnight. So these people were just absolute um, techno. Uh, Techno building creative freaks, a parallel to the Fusion Festival, which is a big uh, back to the land kind of hippie wagon culture. All these people lived in wagons. They had really alternative lives within a city. So it's really ahead of its time, urban, super urban pirate living. So, and where does the uh, food that you're cooking, or how does that sorry. kind of fit into the whole yes. landscape? So, the a couple days after I arrived in this country, desperate for a job, penniless, living on the, uh, in my girlfriend's flat, she, she says, well, Joel, we're going to find you a job. And also being an American, not even an EU citizen, this puts me on the third tier of work, working uh, allowance, meaning um, any job, job as job with a contract that I'm allowed to legally get paid for goes to a German citizen first, then an EU citizen, and then third of all, perhaps an Auslander or, you know, uh, someone from beyond. And even then I would have to file significant paperwork to be allowed to work. So I was here on an artist visa as a musician. And I, uh, yeah, I suppose it doesn't matter anymore. But uh, I was through a friend of my girlfriend's, who, who is a, a German woman, who was a waitress at the time. On top of this techno-pirate rave factory, because it literally had a factory with a smokestack, and every room was super industrial. You might see like gears laying in the corner, and then there's a rave on this other side. Beautiful restaurant. And this grew out of the Bar 25. The Bar 25 had a restaurant too. So as well as these people built this, this rave empire, they had, uh, they had their eye on gastronomy, and I think they involved 
some of the more sympathetic characters from the gastronomy world in Berlin, but who are also into the party, because this is really about the cult of the nonstop party. This is probably cliche now, and it is, but uh, at the time I think it was still something that people really identified with. This was alternative lifestyle. This restaurant was founded originally in the Bar 25, but came into its own as the Katerschmaus, and this was the top floor of the big factory. So as you ate, this, the smoke machine and the unbelievable uh, strobe lights would waft up from below, but this was a wooden... It looked like the galley of a ship, and it was an unbelievable place. We did about 200 a night. And, and what was, would you serve? So it, the, the menu itself was, tr- I would say, German, with uh, emphasis on European classic things. And again, we had different phases. We were six of us in the kitchen, and we had, it was always an open kitchen. This is also a principle of the place. It's performative. We had clowns going through. We had... Classic. Through, mm-hmm. through, the, through, by the table, everything wooden, everything breaking. This is, this is the chaos that was embraced by the place. We had magicians going through who would go by your table. You would play a little, like, shell game. And if you won, you would take some unbelievably alcoholic uh, shots for free. It was, it was the, the, the uh, canteen for the, the people who would later go party. And it had conspicuous consumption. The, the menu itself was quite traditional though so this 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 goes with uh five starters you'd have a a soup everything rotates every two weeks this was great too but we had a soup we had a seasonal salad and then we would have a fish of some kind as as a, a starter and then a vegetarian option and so on and then the main course still would would adhere to the uh i would say a classic german thing which is the piece of meat with a really, really, really flavorful jus. This is the sauce, and nothing else on the plate. Big white plate, and we're known for having a really good steak. And we had a, a, a private herd of uh, of cows in which our our uh, Rinderfleisch, our uh, my English fails me. My our, our beef came from a specifically raised. Uh, commu- uh, community in Argentina, and this, this, this became uh, the, the, the classic. So now if you were to go there, if we were to go and have dinner there, this thing, um, has the menu evolved, or like, what can you expect to, to eat now? It certainly has. Um, well, long story short, this factory was only supposed to be two years. We got a, another six-month extension towards the end, and then we were kicked out again because the owner, like anyone, has sold it to richer investors, and it's now luxury apartments. One of the last days that we're ever expecting to exist as, as a community, and this is 200 employees. Not just, the restaurant was about 20 people, but the whole group of builders. We got a call. There's the, the old Bar 25 land, the homeland, across the river, which we look at every day from our, from our perch. It's, it's on a bylaw is going to be auctioned off because it was owned by the, the Berlin uh, Trash Collection Company. Long story short, with the help of a Swiss pension fund, which is which which is the charter of this fund was to promote inner city cultural things, put up an insane amount of money. They got the land back and redeveloped the old Bar Twenty Five land, in which our kitchen has moved back over across the river, and we're the Fama restaurant. We're in a uh, 
an archway of underneath the S-Bahn rails. So as the, the, the commuter rail cuts across the river going right into Alexanderplatz, right before that, it's right on the river. And in one of those um, yeah, uh, archways is our restaurant. And with this move, the, the kitchen became quite smaller. Not only smaller, we, we produce all our food in a container, like an old shipping container. This is, this is the, the analog to the old Bar 25 where they lived in wagons. They now use containers and repossessed material from ports in Hamburg where all of this extra shipping material is. And they, re, they, they build buildings, clubs, and entire functional parts of the, the land out of these containers. So we have a production kitchen that is hidden from view that's in a container. And then because by law underneath the... Uh, the train tracks, and this is a federal German safety law, we're not allowed to cook with uh, gas. We have a show kitchen in which, an open show kitchen that opens up to the restaurant and the bar in which we use induction cookers and this is our kitchen now. Because of this change and the concentration of this, our capacity is much smaller and the menu has changed. We're still essentially, you order your starters, then your main dish, and then, of course, dessert is optional. And this is, these are these are expensive uh, menus on the dessert and the bar side. But we still have five starters. But the main difference is we have five starters, five mains, which would be usually your beef option, fish option, usually uh, some kind of pork, perhaps, and then a veggie option, and then a surprise option, usually. We are always sourcing random things from our suppliers. But the main difference is the sides. The traditional German kitchen has what you have, a beilag. This is the side dish, which means you have your meat, and then you have your veggies around the, the side of the plate. But the meat is the main thing, and there's a little bit on the side. Now our sides come on their own, and they appear differently on, on, on our dockets in the, in the menu, and it's almost tapas. Mm. So we have very basic starters, very, very basic mains, but there's a much more emphasis on, on sharing a, a a variety up to 10, 15 of these uh, sides. And they're very, very creative. And this is our, our, our one of, one of uh, our greatest chefs there, is, is, is such, a, such a fantastic uh, and creative gentleman with, with vegetables. And his ab- ability to transform seasonal vegetables into creative combinations. And they come in quite small bowls, but they're really good for sharing. So that's the structure of the menu. Um, well, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Um, where can people find the restaurant? Where can they find information? How can they come eat there? Well, we are a part of an incredibly dynamic project of which um, we can pr- perhaps provide links to. But the whole land in which the Bar 25 used to be is called the Holzmarkt. And this is a nod to its old use. Before the turn of the century, it was the Holzmarkt. This is the wooden market. So it was the timber market as things were floated down the river. This includes a preschool, uh, a, a, a theater, an open-air venue, co-working spaces. It's, it's an urban village. And this is the charter where all the money that's been invested in the place mm. is coming. So you can find the restaurant there. Right now, we are cooking through around Christmas this year, 2016, under in our little place that's adjacent to the club, which Katerblau, which still continues to the, the club tradition. And we will be cooking here until we move to our permanent spot, which will be twice as big, which is right on the riverfront, about 100 meters down the river. 
and it will still be right there. Holzmarkstraße, uh, 25, this is bar 25, of course. And uh, this will be open by Christmas. Is, this is the plan. Where it, it's, it's wild. We're watching the construction site next to us every day as we go up. And uh, it will continue to be a, a thriving environment anyway. We're cooking for all the DJs, the politicians. As an American, it's crazy. About once a month, we have the, the U.S. ambassador to Germany, of course, based in here, Berlin, with his secret service men, like, stake out the front of our, our, our venue, and then he comes and dines with us. So I, I think we're doing something right. We, and we, we've been written up in the New York Times, and I really have, in the last three months, I've noticed the, our, our, our uh, crowd to be such a beautiful international thing. So. Amazing. Well, thanks for joining yeah. us. Thank you uh, for your patience. Yeah, yeah. no, of and course. I'm honored. Uh, come see us in Berlin, please. Uh, and we will be right back after a short musical break. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>